You know, for most people, the Christmas holiday is a scandalous disappointment, isn't it? See, for so many people, the Christmas season is sort of this annual hoax that things will finally get better, but they never actually do, do they? For millions of people, maybe even billions of people, Christmas is filled with these fantasy-fueled expectations that the Christmas spirit, whatever on earth that is, will somehow bring them the happiness they've always wanted but never actually experienced. And every year, the outcome is exactly the same. Nothing ever changes. Not really. Because you see, the false myth of Christmas that people buy into is that if they can get it to look like the fairy tale expectations in their minds, that maybe, just maybe, they can get the fantasy to become reality. Maybe, maybe this year things can change. Maybe this year things will be different. And yet December 26th rolls around. And people are left with the open mess of presence and the mess of their lives still there. And the reason why, the reason why nothing is different, get this now, is because the Christ in whom they believed never actually got out of the manger. The reason why they were double-crossed again by the Christmas season is because the Christ in whom they believe is not the matchless king of infinite authority. He's not the sovereign emperor of the universe who deserves and demands our allegiance. He's not the lamb of God, the long-awaited lamb who was slain in the place of sinners. You see, the fatal flaw in their holiday expectations is that they don't know that everything they were created to need and enjoy forever is found alone in the God who became man for us for our salvation. See, that's not only the meaning and goal of Christmas, that's the meaning and goal of everything. And our Advent theme this year, you know, has been a thrill of hope. A thrill of hope. Because you see, when God broke the silence after 400 years of not speaking after the prophet Malachi, he, he did break the silence in the most thrilling and incomprehensible way possible, namely by sending his son as a literal historical human being to save sinners from destruction. We cannot let that get old. We must not let that collect dust. That must remain poignant and potent and powerful and profound to our souls. That is, as they say, the reason for the season, isn't it? And yet, having said that, don't, don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with Christmas trees, not at all, so long as they remind you of the ultimate tree upon which hung the Son of God. I want you to feel not one ounce of shame, and I'm sure you don't, at giving and receiving presents. There is no shame in that, so long as they remind you of the ultimate gift and present who came to earth wrapped in mortal flesh. Candy and cookies and candles have their rightful place on the holidays, so long as they don't overshadow the crib and the cross and the crown of Christ. 
You see, what I love about Christmas is that we who belong to Christ are literally the only ones on the planet who can actually say it is the most wonderful time of the year because we can say that about every day. Why? Because God has spoken. God has revealed himself in the prophets, in the fathers, in the scriptures, and prominently in his own son. And like I said on Friday, this morning you will not go to Bethlehem. There will be no shepherds waiting for you in the field this morning, no wise men from the east, no star in the sky, no angelic visitation to the virgin. There will be no uh, swaddling cloths or mangers, no choirs of angels. I hope you're okay with that. But what you will get is not less Christmas, but the essence of Christmas. Because we're going to unfold the most well-known verse in the history of the church. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Because you see that verse right there, that is Christmas. Warmer than fire and sweeter than cider. That verse is the foundation of our hope and our joy forever. And so here we go. Here we go. This morning, I want you to see from that text, from that one verse, seven factors about salvation. Seven factors about salvation that will help you adore the Son, announce the gospel, and advance God's plan in the world. That's where we're going. Seven factors about salvation that will help you Adore the Son, announce the gospel, and advance God's plan in the world. The first factor of salvation is this. Number one, the driving force of the Father. The driving force of the Father, which is love. Which is love. Now, here's the thing about John 3.16 that you can't forget. Christ is speaking. And in particular, he is speaking about himself. And in the third person, no less. And what this is, it's in the middle of a sermon. And, and actually, what's weird about it is that it's a sermon preached only to one person. And that person's name is Nicodemus. And you know Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee. And you know about the Pharisees, don't you? And strangely enough, when they Pharisees first began some 200 years before this, they were actually a good thing. They were zealous protectors of God's word. But now they had become something else entirely. Now they were powerful, political, influential, self-righteous, and spiritually dead. And Nicodemus was a part of that group, and he was blind, dead, damned, and helpless, and he didn't even know it. That is, until he came and paid a visit to Christ by night, and then he found out the truth. And the truth was, although he had worked his entire life to secure for himself a place in the kingdom, it had all been for nothing. Why? Because either he did not know or he refused to accept that salvation can never, ever be obtained by your own achievements, but only through a sovereign work of God performed in the soul. He had to be born again. But you see, Christ is not merely interested in crushing Nicodemus' dreams. 
but in giving him the truth about salvation. And the truth about salvation is found in verses 1 through 21. But you see how verse 16 fits, famous and familiar verse 16, how it fits in the mix, understand this, is that it displays the deepest theological reason why Christ showed up to the planet in the first place. And why did he? Look at the text. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Did you hear it? The little, tiny, unsuspecting word for there in the text, for just three letters in the Greek, three letters in the English, really small, but yet contained in those three letters is an avalanche of significance. Why? Because Christ is using logic, theological logic. When he says that word, he is giving the deepest theological reason why Christ showed up to the planet in the first place. And why did he show up? For God so loved the world. That's why. That's why. So what that means is that the deepest theological reason why Christ showed up to the planet, get this now, was a Trinitarian reason. There's a Trinitarian reason. God so loved the world. And by God, Christ means God the Father. So that means God the Father sent his own son to take the wrath he didn't deserve for sins he didn't commit. Not because we were worth it, not because we deserved it, not because of anything in us, but because of radical, Trinitarian, affectionate love. And maybe you're thinking, where is the Trinity in that? I don't see the Trinity. Oh, it's there. The Father sent his son God the Father sent God the Son, not on a suicide mission, but a salvation mission to save ruined sinners from eternal woe and despair. And that's the very definition of Christmas, isn't it? But you notice, don't you, the Father didn't just love the world, astonishing though that would be. What, is it, what does the text actually say? He so loved the world. So loved. Because there's a difference, right? There is a distinct qualitative difference between I love you and I so love you. The difference is in terms of emphasis, in terms of intensity, in terms of passion. You see, the Father was not obligated to save sinners. He was motivated to save sinners, not because the world was a worthy object of love, but because the one who loves is infinitely worthy. Which raises the question, right? What is the love of God? What does it mean that God is love? What does that mean? Here's what it means. God's love is God doing whatever it takes to do what's best for sinners. You would agree with that, right? That God's love is God doing whatever it takes to do what's best for sinners. That, of course, raises the question, well, what is best for sinners? God himself is what is best for sinners. Therefore, God's love is God doing whatever it takes, even at the cost of his son's life. 
to get us to enjoy God with everlasting and ever-increasing pleasure forever. The love of God is radically God-centered. And so to the Christians here in this room, I just ask you, do you get what the love of God means for your life? Do you know what it means to be a people loved by God? It is three things to be loved by God. His love for you is eternal, it is particular, and it is undeserved. Think about it. His love for you is eternal. As long as God has existed, which is always and forever, he has loved you. His love for you is particular. You understand, yes, of course, we see God's love is general and worldwide here, but it does not take long to look in the Bible to see that his love for you is very, very particular, specific, and his love for you and me is undeserved, isn't it? I mean, despite the fact that we did nothing to deserve it, and you see, that is the deepest assurance that everything in our lives is going to be okay. That is the deepest assurance in our lives that everything that happens in our lives is a design from God himself, designed to give us more of himself to be enjoyed. And to those who don't know Christ, and I hope you are here, and I am glad you're here, either here or online. If you don't know Christ, you need to be reminded of the true meaning of Christmas. There is a God who loves you. And he wants to set you free from the chains of your sin through Jesus Christ who came to the planet not to sneak presents under a tree, but to be the present hanging on a tree in the place of sinners. Second factor about salvation that you need to know. Number two, the direction of the plan. The direction of the plan, which is the world. The world. Because you see, the brilliance of God's love becomes all the more apparent and even shocking when it is juxtaposed with the object of his love, namely us, namely the world. Because you understand there is something about the world that makes it outrageous that it would be the object of God's love, right? Now, you've read this a thousand times in your life. Look at it again, verse 16. For God so loved, what? He loved the world. He loved the world. The world. Think about that for a moment. That is loaded. That is theologically loaded. The world. And I'll admit, I, I confess, I am obsessed Lots of things, but in particular, the Trinity and the plan of salvation unfolding in the world. I am obsessed with that. I think about it all the time. And you see, the triune God always had a plan to save human beings even before there were any human beings to save. God loved the world even before there was a world to love. Think about that. That is astonishing. That is breathtaking. And that itself would be enough to, to astonish you. And yet, and yet there's, there's more to it than that because what simply pushes us over the edge is what Christ means by the world. Because by the world, he doesn't just mean, he doesn't mean at all, actually, Mother Earth or the physical planet. He means people, doesn't he? Fallen people. Defiant people. Rebellious people. Wicked 
people, depraved people. He means the entirety of the human race who has defied him and rejected him and exchanged him and belittled him and treated him as though he were worthless. That's what he means by the world. I mean, you understand what it means to be a member of the human race, don't you? It means that we are all born guilty of God's wrath guilty of sin, deserving God's wrath. And when you get that, when you get what it means to be a member of the human race, only then can we feel the scandal of, for God so loved the world. And yet, is that the only thing that Christ means by the world? It means more than that, doesn't it? See, it doesn't only mean the depravity of the world, it means the diversity of the world. Because the world is filled with tribes and tongues and nations and ethno-linguistic people groups. This is, this is everyone in all nations, everyone from murderers to self-righteous do-gooders. This is billions and billions of people on the planet throughout the ages that God has loved with radical Trinitarian affection. And you see the implications of this, right? There are multiple, one of which is you realize that America has basically been divided up. The population has been divided up into various groups, right? Of whom the declaration about them is the patently obvious fact that their lives matter. Duh. No one disputes that. Their lives do matter. But that all misses the point. What matters is that the glory of God has been trampled by human beings who only deserve wrath, who only deserve hell, and yet God in his love made a way where they don't have to bear that punishment. He made a way where the punishment that we deserve may be placed upon another, a substitute who stands in the place of sinners. And that substitute is Jesus Christ. And that right there, you understand, is the deepest racial severing, prejudice erasing reality in the universe. God so loved the world, wicked though it was. Third factor about salvation. Number three, the, deci the decision to rescue. The decision to rescue, which is God gave, if you see in your notes there. And I realize that I'm about to run the risk of getting us lost in the details, but I want you to fixate on those words, that he gave. You see that in the text there? God so loved the world, that he gave. Gave Because you know what that word means, that or so that. You know what that means? Consider, husbands, and this is no pressure at all, but if a husband so loved his wife that he bought her, that he bought her an all-expenses-paid trip to Europe, what does the word that mean? What does so that mean? Well, it's, it's obvious. It means that his love and affection for his wife prompted and resulted in buying her a European vacation. You see the word that or so that, it means outcome. It means result. It means byproduct. You see, the point is the radical love of the Father could not be contained. It could not be restrained. It had to overflow. It had to be displayed. It had to be offered in infinite generosity to the very people who sinned against him. 
namely us. You see, his love resulted in a captivating salvation plot to save ruined sinners from destruction. And notice what Christ says. He says, for God so loved the world that he gave. He gave. He gave his son. He didn't just send his son. That's true too. He gave his son. He gave him. Gave means gift. Gift meaning when we only deserve judgment and wrath. God gave the opposite of that. And the opposite was his son. And there's a name for that in the Bible, isn't there? When God gives us the opposite of what we deserve, there's a name for that, and it's called grace. And you got to get grace, because if you miss grace, you miss Christianity. What is grace? Grace is God's pleasure to save sinners from what they most deserve and give them what they least deserve. That's grace. And what we most deserve is wrath. What we least deserve is rescue. We deserve destruction, not deliverance. We deserve punishment, not pleasure. We deserve eternal torment, not eternal treasure. And yet, in the greatest plot twist in history, God intervened as a human being to give sinners what they least deserve, which is himself to be enjoyed as their highest treasure forever. You see, God is so many things all at the same time. He is a creator. He is a ruler. He is a king. He is a father. But never forget that God is also by nature a savior. He loves sinners. And he loves to save them. And he spared no expense to do so, namely what he, by giving his own son to be treated as sinners deserve, and that is the essence of grace, isn't it? And here's a misunderstanding about grace that we really need to clear up this morning. You see, we tend to think of grace as being this thing, oh, this thing that we really needed at the beginning, but now, well, we're not really sure what to do post-conversion, but here is the payoff of grace. This is very important about grace. You see, the same grace that saves is the same grace that sanctifies. The same grace that resurrected our souls from the dead is the same grace that, get this, renovates our lives into the image of his son. Grace isn't just the thing that sort of tips us into the kingdom and gets us saved. No, grace is the very power of God that transforms us and makes us fit for the kingdom. Do you see? And how you access that grace, how that grace gets funneled down to you in your lives. And you've heard this before from here. But how that grace gets funneled into your lives is through the moment by moment desperation and dependence upon God through his word. His word is the channel through which his power to transform you comes into your life. Because we love, we love to talk about Christianity being a relationship, right? And it is that. It is that. But we need to find the nature of that relationship. This is not a relationship in which you have two able-bodied people equally contributing to one another's welfare. No. This is a relationship between a cripple and a caregiver. 
We are the cripples. We are the spiritual quadriplegics. And Jesus Christ is the paramedic who not only saved us from the wreckage, but he also rehabilitates our lives through the transforming power of grace, which comes through the word. Don't you see? It's not just that Christ is a savior. It is the kind of savior he is. He knew exactly what he was getting into when he saved us. We not only needed forgiveness, we needed transformation. And he is willing to do that. Brings us to the fourth factor of salvation. Number four, the design to save. The design to save, which is the son. You know, if you've been around Christianity long enough, it just begins to sound normal. Even kind of mundane, shockingly routine. It just becomes common knowledge. It just becomes really basic and and even redundant to, to know that salvation comes through believing in Christ alone as God and King and Savior and treasure. That's really, really basic. Christianity 101, got that. Moving on. And yet. Consider how this would have sounded to a first century Jew like Nicodemus. Maybe it sounded something like this. The secret weapon of God's plan of salvation. God's design to save sinners was a Jewish peasant with no formal education, crucified on a Roman instrument of torture and death, who, if you can believe it, rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, currently rules the universe, and one day will return and establish his kingdom on this planet, and to him you must yield and give your allegiance. That's crazy. That's that's outrageous, isn't it? Because what does a Jew crucified on a hunk of lumber 2,000 years ago, how does that change the status of anybody's soul? That's not crazy. That's incredible. And it works because Christ was not just a man, but God incarnated as a man. Look again at verse 16. Notice whom it is that God sent. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He gave his son. That's very interesting, right? The, The design of God to save sinners was not a ritual or a ceremony or a philosophy. It was a person. It was a person, and and the secret weapon of the plan of salvation was Jesus Christ. And I know you know that. You've always known that. But haven't you always wondered what son means? For years, I tripped over the shoelaces of that son language because it kind of makes it sound like that Christ is something less than God, like sort of like a, a demigod or discount deity, something less than God, but more than man, right? No, not that. But what does it mean that he is the son? I mean, what would this have sounded like in the ears of a trained scholar like Nicodemus? Consider, if you were an Old Testament Jew, Hebrew, who loved your Tanakh, you loved your Hebrew Bible, you would be what we would call a strict, rigid monotheist. What is that? 
It means that you would be ferociously, ferociously dogmatic that there is one God and one God only, right? Which is exactly what we believe. Not two, not millions of gods. There is one God, period, on pain of death. There is one. And yet, what was that Hebrew who loved his Tanakh, his Hebrew Bible, what was he supposed to do when he saw more than one person in the text called God, sometimes even in the same verse? Because that exists in the Old Testament, you know. What was he supposed to do? That faithful Old Testament Hebrew, he could draw one of two conclusions. Either God was schizophrenic with multiple personalities or there were multiple persons in the Godhead. In other words, God is a trinity. One God, eternally existing as three separate but equal persons who are each fully God. They are each eternally God. They are each equally God and yet there is one God. And I'll grant you that, yes, the full blueprints of the Trinity were not fully revealed in the Old Testament. That is true. But, but there were enough hints and glimpses and shadows in the Old Testament for people to know that although God was God alone, he was not alone. Although God was one, he was simultaneously more than one, that one plus one plus one equals one. You see, Nicodemus would have known, although this son language would be somewhat mysterious and enigmatic and strange to be sure, this was nothing new. Dozens of times in the Old Testament, the Messiah was called the son. Did you know that? And in those passages, he is given divine attributes. 2 Samuel 7, twice in Psalm 2, Proverbs 30, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 42, Zechariah 12, Daniel 7, on and on it goes. Mysterious and logic-defying to be sure. This was nothing new to Nicodemus. So you see, when Christ calls himself the Son, what this is is a profoundly Trinitarian statement. You understand that, right? To be the Son does not make Christ inferior or less than God. It doesn't mean that he was beginning or, or was created. It doesn't mean that he's younger or less mature than the Father. No, you understand the Son of God is a title of deity. He is God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, equal to the Father in terms of glory and worth and value and attributes and perfections. But as the Son, he has a particular role in the plan of salvation that differentiates him from the Father and from the Spirit, you see. And his role is as the one sent by the Father to die in the place of sinners. And you notice, don't you, the father didn't just give his son, he gave what? His only son, his only son. Maybe your version says only begotten son. And that sounds like strange language to us, but you have to understand that word only doesn't merely mean a mathematical minimum. The word only is really important. The word only expresses dignity. It speaks of rank. 
It, it talks of supremacy. It means to have no equal, to be set apart, to be incomparable. You see, this is not some controversial rabbi who did nice things for people. This is not some angelic visitation, although that would have been incredible. Now, out of everyone the Father could have given to save us, he gave the best there is. He gave his son. Which raises the question, doesn't it? Why the son? Why the son? Why did it have to be him? I mean, why is he the center of the plan? Why, why did the father not incarnate as a man? Why did the Holy Spirit not become a human being? Well, I don't know why it had to be the son, but I know why it was. John 17, you remember, blows the whole thing wide open. As Christ prays to the Father, he reveals secrets. You like secrets. Christ has a whole bunch in John 17. All sorts of Trinitarian, eternal secrets revealed there in the text. You don't have to turn there. But in John 17, we discover what the Trinity was doing together before creation for all eternity. If you want to know what the Trinity was doing before creation, John 17 is your place. And in that chapter, Christ reveals that for all eternity, the Father loved the Son and the Father and Son were loving one another with mutual Trinitarian love and affection, admiring one another's glory. And as the Father looks upon his Son, get this, he is so thrilled by what he sees, he crafts a plan of salvation with his Son at the center. Why? Show and tell. That's why. You remember show and tell? You bring something in kindergarten to school and you get to show and tell it. You get to show it and talk about it and, and explain it and, and talk about why you love it. And you wanted everyone else to feel about that thing the way you felt about that thing. The point is all of human history is one giant show and tell by the Father. crafted a plan with his son at the center because he wanted everyone to see and enjoy what he had seen and enjoyed forever. He crafted a plan with his son at the center because he wanted everyone to feel about his son the way he felt about his son forever. You have to understand this is so important. The deepest reason you have salvation this morning, if indeed you do have it, is because father's affection for his own son. Here's what I need you to hear about Christ this morning. Here's an application to that. It's very important. You understand that every lingering, every embarrassing, every sinful issue in our lives is conquered, is conquered, is overcome, lies before us in subjection when we feel about the Son the way the Father feels about the Son. Did you know that? The only power in the world that can dislodge the deeply embedded sin issues in our lives is when we see and enjoy the Son the way the Father enjoys His own Son. Do you see this? 
What I mean is, if your heart be thrilled by Jesus Christ, it will no longer be thrilled by the pleasures that seek to replace him. You see, the key to a thriving Christian life is not to think less deeply about Christ, but to push yourselves deeper than ever into who Christ is. Fifth factor about salvation. Fifth factor about salvation, number five, the duty of the guilty. The duty of the guilty, by the way, that's like a half hour too fast, so I've got so much time to play with. I just want you to know that. I don't, really. But the duty of the guilty, let's talk about faith for a moment. Because the Father has provided a way of escape, hasn't he? I mean, there is a way to access what Christ purchased and paid for. And it is by faith. You've seen this so many times. Look again in the text. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him, believes in him, should not perish but have eternal life. Do you see it? You have got to believe. you got to believe. I mean, the mere fact that Christ showed up to the planet and died for sinners automatically changes nothing about the status of the soul. There has to be a deliberate transaction of faith on the part of the one who needs salvation. And yet the question is, what does faith even mean? Because hasn't that always felt a little nebulous? A little fuzzy? You have to understand faith is neither blind nor is it a leap. No, faith has substance. Faith has an object, and it is Christ through his word. You see, faith is way more than mere intellectual agreement with a set of historical facts, although that's true. There's more to it than that. Faith isn't merely believing in something that you can't see, although there is some truth to that. That's not the whole truth. You see, the whole truth is to believe in Christ means this. It means that all that Christ is and all that Christ accomplished becomes four things to you. One, your deepest treasure. Two, your ultimate significance. Three, your consuming identity. And four, your highest allegiance. I'm going to say that again. You need to feel that. You need to hear that. To believe in Christ, to have faith in Christ, means all that Christ is and all that Christ accomplished becomes four things to you. One, your deepest treasure Two, your ultimate significance. Three, your consuming identity. And four, your highest allegiance. And so I ask you this morning, is Christ your highest treasure? Is he your ultimate significance? Is he your consuming identity? And is he your highest allegiance? That is faith. That is faith. Do you have it? Do you have faith in the Son of God? The question is, what does faith look like on this side of things? On this side of salvation, what does faith look like? 
contrary to what so many people just assume, faith is not just a one-time only thing. No, it is ongoing. It is perpetual. You understand what faith is in the everyday trenches of life. Get this, is to grab a hold of the promises of God found in his word and to live them and obey them as if they were true because that's what they are. They are true. Faith as a believer means that you cling moment by moment, second by second with desperation and dependence upon the object of faith, namely Jesus Christ alone. That is faith. And that brings us to the sixth factor about salvation. Number six, the danger of rejection. The danger of rejection, which is perishing, which is to perish. Because I've said this many times to friends, gospel conversations with unbelievers, eventually it gets to the point where I have to say this, and I say something along the lines of, you know, hell is a real place, and people go there. And there are people there right now. Look what Christ says in verse 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Isn't that interesting? There is a way to perish. In fact, that is what everyone is doomed for at birth. But there is a way to not perish. There is a way to not suffer eternal wrath. And we know that is exactly what Christ is talking about. Why? Because he contrasts it. It is the opposite of eternal life. He's talking about eternal punishment. And we know that. You see, purgatory does not exist. It is an invention. Hell is not a rehabilitation program. And once you're there, there's no getting out early for good behavior. You need to say it slowly. Eternal, conscious torment. It is real. It is true. It exists. And it will happen to countless. That's what we all deserve. But the whole point of the text is that God made a way where sinners don't have to bear that punishment. That's unbelievable. That's unbelievable that God would make a way. God would make a way for us, for us to escape the wrath that we so deserve. How? How? By sending his son. That's crazy. That is outlandish. You can't make this stuff up. But you can reject it. You can disbelieve it. What fools are they who for a flame of pleasure will swim in an ocean of wrath? People don't have to swim in that ocean. Because there is a seventh and final factor, and it's this, number seven, the destiny of the undeserving. The destiny of the undeserving, which is eternal life. You know, head-on collisions in traffic are fatal. Head-on collisions of grace in the text are fantastic. And we see one in the end of verse 16. Let's read it one more time. God so loved the world that he gave his only son 
so that everyone who believes in him should not perish, but instead of that, in fact, the exact opposite of that is to have eternal life. The but there is a head-on collision of glory. It's glory. There is a way to not perish, but have eternal life. Like, seriously? That's what everybody wants. I mean, what's behind the anger and the fear and the intimidation of the culture? What's behind all that? It's that people long to be satisfied by something infinitely satisfying, and yet they are woefully disappointed, bitterly disappointed. People have this insatiable hunger to find that thing that will satisfy their souls forever, right? I mean, that's what everybody wants. Why do you think the U.S. government spends $9 billion a year on space exploration? Like, seriously? And they have done that since the 50s? That's crazy. Why are they doing that? Why are they wasting our money? It's because they are looking for hope in something beyond this world, aren't they? Everyone has a longing in their souls for what will eternally satisfy, and that is exactly what eternal life is. You remember, don't you, John 17, 3. Christ says that eternal life is knowing him and the Father. Luke 23, 43, what did Christ say to the thief on the cross? Today you will be with me where? In paradise. Start putting pieces together. Eternal life is knowing God. It is paradise. And then Ephesians 2, 7, Paul says that in the coming ages, God will display the unfathomable riches of his grace in kindness upon us for all the coming ages. What do we see? What is this? Eternal life is not merely living a really long time. It is knowing and seeing and savoring the beauty and infinite worth and majesty of God forever. That's eternal life. And this isn't going to be some mystical, intangible thing. No, you will do things and say things and see things and eat things in eternity. And this Christmas, you should have felt, and I hope you did, totally freed up to eat candy canes or fruitcake. Is that a thing? Do people eat fruitcake in Texas? No one eats fruitcake. You should have felt totally freed up to enjoy sugar cookies. Those are good. Ornaments, those are sweet. Blinking lights, manger scenes, you should have felt freed up to enjoy all of the trappings of Christmas. Not as ends in themselves as if they were the point, but because they are but samples and appetizers of what eternal life will be like. Because what will make eternal life paradise is not necessarily that it lasts forever, but that God will be there and he will satisfy our longings forever. If you're a stranger to Christ this morning, I close with this. If you don't know Christ, if you are a stranger to Christ, you don't actually know him, you're not reconciled to God through Christ, you are still under the wrath of God and a slave to sin, I just want you to know that Jesus Christ is there for the taking. He is. Everything that he purchased with his death is free of charge. Do not make the same mistake that Nicodemus made. 
who felt as though he had to earn the kingdom with his meritorious achievements. He could not, he would not, he did not. It is free. It is there, purchased and paid for in full by the infinitely costly death of God the Son. You know this. I know you've heard this. But the question is, if you do not know him, are you ready to yield to him in hungry submission? Are you ready to yield to him in repentance and faith? Because if you're a stranger to Christ, I want to entice you with some lyrics of a Christmas song that people sing every year. Listen carefully. This is my call to the unconverted. And then we close. Come then to him who lies in the manger. With joyful shepherds proclaim him Lord. Let not the promised son remain a stranger. In reverent worship make Christ your adored. Eternal life is theirs who would receive him. With grace and peace their lives he will adorn. Fall on your knees. Receive the gift of heaven. O night divine when Christ was born. Let's go to the Lord. Oh, Lord, who knew, who knew that one verse could contain so much depth? Who knew that John 3.16, oh, Lord, was a vast ocean cave? In the Mariana Trench of your revelation, that there was more there than meets the eye. That it was a theological amusement park filled with great pleasures that we had never seen. Of delicacies that we had not yet tasted. Thank you for this. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to savor your son the way you have savored your son. Oh, Father, that you would help us to love and adore your son the way you love and adore your son because we know from John 17, Father, that's what it means to be a Christian. Help us to do that. Give us grace for that. We are not adequate to the task. We are not up for the job. We struggle, prone to wander. Lord, we feel it, prone to leave the Savior we love. Help us, O Lord, with supernatural power to live for Christ, to love him, and to have our lives be echoed in what the Apostle Paul said when he said, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And it's in his glorious name that we pray.